Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Zimbabwe's ruling party ZANU-PF Central Committee to meet next week. South African President condemns Israel for building new settlements in Palestine. And Namibia's Electoral Commission defends the use of electronic voting machines. In economics, Russia's Gazprom Bank signs deal with South Africa's PIC. And in sports news, South African Springboks coach names team to face Wales. But first up, the news with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. Togo's opposition has slammed President Fona Sengbe's rejection of political reform before next year's general election. Nasengbe says he will not bow to demands to restrict the number of presidential mandates to two five-year terms. Currently, there is no limit on how many terms a president can serve. Police in the capital last week fired tear gas at protesters marching for political reform after they defied government orders not to approach the National Assembly. Another demonstration has been called for tomorrow when members of 16 human rights organizations will take to the streets calling for institutional and constitutional reform. Three Namibian opposition parties whose application to postpone the upcoming elections was dismissed by the High Court has filed a notice of appeal against the ruling in the Supreme Court. The Electoral Commission of Namibia has opposed the appeal. The opposition parties are challenging the constitutionality of the electronic voting machines that will be used in the elections. The nation of just more than two million is heading to the polls for the fifth presidential and national assembly elections tomorrow. The UN mission for Ebola emergency response has opened an office in Mali where two new cases have emerged amid the monitoring of nearly 300 people for potential contraction of the deadly virus. The Malian Ministry of Health has reported two new cases of the Ebola virus in patients. Mali, which recorded its seventh Ebola death on November the 20th, started grappling with the epidemic last month. Ebola has killed nearly 5,500 people and infected 15,351, mainly in West Africa, according to the latest figures from the World Health Organization. Cameroon's military has freed 15 of its nationals along with a Polish priest being held as hostages after being abducted by rebels from the Central African Republic. The Cameroonians were kidnapped by the Democratic Front of the Central African People near the country's eastern border to the Central African Republic during two separate attacks on the 14th and 16th of last month. The FDC is demanding the release of their leader who was arrested in the capital Yaoundé in mid-September. And finally, the President of the United States is being urged by a group of UN human rights experts to support the release of a report on interrogation practices of the country's Central Intelligence Agency. The UN Office for Human Rights says the experts wrote to President Barack Obama in an open letter which was made public yesterday. Stephanie Kutrix reports. The letter says that the report conducted by a committee of 15 U.S. senators would have far-reaching consequences for victims of human rights violations everywhere and for the credibility of the United States. Launched in 2009, the Senate investigation lasted four years and examined millions of pages of CIA documents and emails. Its release to the public was approved in April 2014, but it has yet to be made available, reportedly due to demands by the CIA that material be removed from the report. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Thursday, November the 27th, the 331st day of 2014 with exactly 34 days left in the year. A top story, the Electoral Commission of Namibia has defended the use of an electronic voting system for Friday's elections. Namibia will be the first African country to have a paperless election. But opposition parties are fighting the system. They are heading to the Supreme Court to appeal a high court ruling that dismissed their application for elections to be postponed to February. They are opposing the use of the electronic voting machines or EVMs. Zaline Merrington reports from Vinduk. Place the ballot paper on the screen of the ballot unit, close it in, then the ballot paper is sealed in so that uh, no tampering with the ballot paper will take uh, place. Then of course our red register button. Then the ballot unit is closed, sealed off. An illustration of how the electronic voting machine works. As soon as it is activated, voters can cast their ballots within seconds. If the elections go ahead, Namibia will be the first African country to have a paperless election. But opposition parties claim because it has no paper trail, verifying the elections will be impossible, opening it up to vote rigging. But the High Court dismissed the application with costs, ruling that they failed to provide substantive evidence. Monica Nembelele, with the Rally for Democracy and Progress, is leading the fight. We are just as surprised for a small country like ours is it really to enhance you know, the voting process if you are having a machine which can be disputed because that machine virtually can be pre-programmed, that it can give the desired results to a government because if a voter votes, it must be audited in some way. Government and the Electoral Commission say the system was introduced following disputes over the 2009 elections. Opposition parties took on a three-year-long battle challenging the outcome. They argued then that the election results were rigged, but the Supreme Court ruled their claims had no basis in law and lacked substance. Notemba Chapucha is the chair of the Electoral Commission. This is a way of enhancing and improving electoral processes. That is the main reason why we went for the electronic voting machine. We have seen how this machine has been used effectively in India for over 30 years, been used by people who are illiterate and people who are elderly, and they have no problem with using this machine. Even people who are disabled, who are physically challenged and are blind because we have braille on this machine and therefore we have felt that we are moving forward, we are advancing, we are advancing our electoral systems. Chipucha says the opposition parties will deploy party agents to monitor the process. She says there is still a chance to dispute the results. Therefore there should be no query as to the result because there is, the result is given immediately. Within 10 minutes of the close-up poll we have the result for that polling station. And if there is any query serious query, then it is for the court to order the, the, the control unit to be opened up and all the memory is in that control unit. So it can remain there for 10 years. So the, the, the memory is there, the result is there. If there is any legal query, it is just like a court order for a ballot box to be opened after elections for a recount. The same principle applies. 
More than 1.2 million people are due to vote on Friday, and the Electoral Commission says it needs just over 2,000 machines for the vote. Some will be mobile units moving between voting stations. Zeline Merrington, Vintuk, Namibia. Now, Namibia will vote in Africa's first electronic ballot tomorrow, a general election that will usher in a new president and quotas to put more women in government. Opposition parties are against the use of the Indian-made e-voting machines, claiming the lack of a paper trail could open the door to vote rigging. Around 1.2 million Namibians are eligible to cast their ballots at nearly 4,000 electronic voting stations across the vast desert nation. Now, our question to you today is, do you think electronic voting machines are reliable? Give us your thoughts, your views on email at infochannelafrica.org or SMS plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa One. Do you think electronic voting machines are reliable? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF Central Committee is to meet next week to review results of the organ's elections in which senior party leaders, including the country's vice president, were denied seats. The Central Committee is is a party's principal organ from whose membership Party leader Robert Mugabe will appoint his two vice presidents and party chairman in the Congress next week. Shingai Nyoka has more. Why? President Robert Mugabe appears jovial at a Politburo meeting just a week ahead of the elective Congress. His once heir apparent Vice President Joyce Mujuru is conspicuously absent from the meeting. Mujuru's power base in the party has been virtually decimated following Tuesday's elections for the Central Committee, the principal party organ. Many of the senior party leaders perceived to be allies, including the Secretary for Administration Didimas Mutasa, were defeated. Mujuru herself has also been denied a seat in the Central Committee. The Mashonaland Central Election Directorate refused to accept her CV application, citing her links to an alleged assassination plot against Robert Mugabe. Shakespeare Hamauswa is a political analyst. She is destroyed strategically when she's out of the Central Committee. Uh, being in the central committee is a strategic position, but uh, we cannot really say uh, she has been booted out. There are still other options. Only President Mugabe can save her. He has the power to appoint 10 people into the central committee. The Politburo will also on Wednesday finalize proposed amendments to the party constitution to empower President Mugabe to appoint his two vice presidents and party chairmen, doing away with elections for those posts. It remains a secret who he will appoint. Frontrunners include the defense minister, Sidney Sekeramai, who has so far remained untainted by scandal, and Justice Minister Emerson Mnangagwa, who a decade ago was also accused of plotting to topple Mugabe. We have Sekaramai, uh, some uh, 
say maybe is a dark horse, but uh, the political stamina that is needed now uh, in ZANPF could also be tricky for uh, for Sekiramai. It's not really certain that uh, Munangagwa will take over because there are also other issues and the, the issue of appealing to the public. Even uh, after reading all these scandals, people still believe that Maim uh, Juru is a, a better devil. We'll see what Mugabe will uh, actually do. It's not really certain. That was Zimbabwean-based political analyst Shakespeare Hamwa Wusa ending that report by Shinganyoka in Harare. Demonstrations have been held in Yeyi Town in South Sudan's central equatorial state to protest the killing of more than 40 people over the past month. Channel Africa's James Shimangula reports. More than 10,000 people of South Sudan's town of Ye in Central Equatoria State have held demonstrations to protest against the killing of more than 40 people over the past four weeks. The killings have been described by the people of Ye as mysterious because up to now, local police have not arrested the culprits responsible for the heinous act. Yei is located in central Equatoria state in South Sudan. It is there also that South Sudan's capital Yuba is found. Yuba is on the western bank of River Nile, while Yei is close to South Sudan's border with Uganda. Democratic Republic of Congo is west of Yei. The Yei demonstration was organized by the area's civil society group. One of the participants in the protest, housewife Cecilia Obad Mading, who lost three of her relatives, decried the killings and loudly lamented that it can happen to anybody anytime. Today it has been a hard time, but tomorrow is going to be me. So I don't know where our life is leading to, and we don't know where South Sudan is leading to. So that is our worry. The Yai demonstration was held in an atmosphere of loud, continuous, confused, and unpleasant noise. Raising his voice to address people participating in the demonstration organized by Yei Civil Society Organization, Secretary General Baraka David Salek explained why the rare demonstration was taking place in Yei. At the same time, we are also using this demonstration to inform our government, the people in authority, the SPLA and the police, that they are not doing enough. We need people brought into account. We need that our people can spend a night with a lot of hope of seeing tomorrow. South Sudan is changed. Addressing participants in the demonstration, Yei Deputy Mayor Silvanus Ali, speaking in Arabic through an interpreter, said, Our citizens of Yei, we are all saddened to this sad news. What happened is unbelievable. What happened? That Deputy Mayor Silvanus Ali is posing in a question form refers to the killing of a local chief by unknown people. The killings in Yei have shocked the authorities in the capital Juba because the area has remained relatively peaceful since ethnic fighting erupted in the country 
on December 15 last year following a claim by President Salva Kiir that 11 prominent politicians had plotted to topple him. The politicians were arrested, taken to court where they faced treason charges but were freed after they were pardoned by President Salva Kiir. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1990. John Major is elected Prime Minister of Britain. Major did not achieve the majority required for an absolute victory, but the margin was clear enough for his rivals to withdraw and a third ballot was avoided. Let's listen to this report. The announcement of the result was made less than half an hour after the ballot boxes were sealed at 6 o'clock last evening in the House of Commons committee room. It was made by Cranley Onslow, the chairman of the 1922 Tory backbench committee. The total number of votes cast was 372. Of these, the number received by each of the candidates was as follows. Michael Hasseltine, 131. Douglas Hurd, 56. John Major, 185. The result meant John Major did far better than expected, but just two votes short of the outright majority required under Tory party rules. Within minutes, Michael Hesseltine conceded defeat and graciously withdrew. I congratulate John Major. I thank him and Douglas Hurd for an absolutely first-class campaign fought by colleagues without rancor or bitterness, which I believe lays the basis for the unity of our party. And within a few more minutes, John Major walked out into Downing Street to speak to waiting journalists. It's an enormous encouragement to know that so many people in the parliamentary party are prepared to entrust me with the leadership of the Conservative Party, and I will endeavour to discharge those responsibilities to the best of my ability. And that was John Major speaking on this day in 1990 after he was elected Prime Minister of Britain. Today in history. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorra. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South African President Jacob Zuma has joined other world leaders in condemning Israel for defying calls that it sees building new settlements in occupied Palestinian land. The president said this after holding private talks with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas at the Union Buildings in Pretoria. The two leaders discussed issues relating to the Middle East peace process, calls for unity amongst Palestinian factions, including bilateral political and trade relations between Palestine and Pretoria. Tsepa Iganing has more. A 21-gun salute to welcome Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas as he embarked on his first state visit to South Africa. His visit comes at a time when political tension in the Middle East is on the boil due to the decision by Israel to build more settlements in occupied Palestinian lands. The move has enraged Israel's key allies. 
the UK and US governments have strongly criticized Israel's decision to approve one of the largest appropriations of Palestinian land for settlement in recent decades. The settlement affects nearly 400 hectares near Bethlehem. Jewish settlements in Jerusalem are among the most contentious issues between Israel and the Palestinians. Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, sought by the Palestinians for a future state, are considered illegal under international law, though Israel disputes this. Addressing the media after the meeting with Mahmoud Abbas, President Jacob Zuma said illegal settlement activities are in violation of Palestinians' rights to have a free and independent state. We agreed that the continuing building of settlements in occupied Palestinian lands is undermining prospects for a two-state solution as envisaged by the United Nations and the international community. We reiterate our call for the total cessation of all settlement activities. Speaking through an interpreter, Abbas thanked the South African government for its continued support and vowed to intensify efforts to achieve Palestinian statehood. We will continue to work and strive with the United Nations Security Council to ensure that we are freed from occupation and the state of Palestine is established and to stop the settlements and we will not abandon our people in Jerusalem, people in Gaza, in the refugee camps and in the diaspora. South Africa and Palestine signed an agreement for the establishment of a joint commission of cooperation. The PEC will facilitate regular interaction on political and diplomatic fields, including on higher education and training. President Zuma later conferred the order of the companions of O.R. Tambo on Abbas, who reciprocated by bestowing the Star of Palestine on President Zuma. Tsepo Pretoria. The member states that make up the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, are meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, to discuss how to formulate better migration policies for their nationals. The meeting comes in the wake of an increase of national returnees to the region, as well as heightened complaints of mistreatment of migrant workers in the Gulf states. Koleta Wanjohi has more. The meeting has brought together member states of the IGAD region, namely Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Djibouti, Sudan, South Sudan and Somalia. The main issue of focus is on the refugee situation in the region, increase of internally displaced people and migration to the Gulf states and other European countries. The causes of these situations are not only restricted to conflicts, but also natural disaster and willingness of people to move. The executive secretary of IGAD, Mahabub Maalim, says that IGAD member states are at the center of all these challenges and as such need to have frequent interaction to ensure that they have policies that will ensure better treatment of refugees, reduced internally displaced people and curbing of illegal migration out of the region. Well, more and more is becoming gradually um, critical that uh, issues that are emerging uh, in, across the globe are better being done on cross-regional basis, um, cross-border uh, basis. Therefore, 
no longer is development or peace and security issues uh, or any other critical issue uh, or member state specific anymore. It is more and more something that can be done or can be initiated in a member state, but gradually it has to be done with the, with the neighbors. And that's why we think as a secretariat, our member states uh, are wise to try to use the platform that they have formed, which is us, to try and get them together to address these uh, pertinent issues. In the past 12 months in the Igad region, there has been massive return of nationals to their countries. The International Organization for Migration gives an estimate of 300,000 nationals who have returned to their countries for various reasons. In Ethiopia alone, the government this year brought back over 170,000 of its nationals who had been in Saudi Arabia, where some were living illegally and most being subjected to harsh treatment by their employers. Somalia received 44,000 returnees between January and July this year, and Sudan 36,000. The head of the IOM mission in Ethiopia, Josia Ogina, says that in addition to this, there have also been cases of youth and women who have returned home after being victims of human trafficking within the region. The conditions are still not very good. The governments of the region, Kenya, even uh, these countries, uh, Ethiopia and others, are trying to see how they can rework their MOUs and more importantly one of the reflections that uh, we would like to hear from member states represented here is how do they have a common approach to issues of human rights in the Gulf states, issues of better salaries, better working conditions and more importantly, more than anything else, better preparedness for our migrants who are going out there because that's the, the main cause of some of those inhuman treatment because a lot of our young girls, a lot of our young boys go out there not knowing what, they're just chancing there. They do not know what awaits them. They, don't, they have problems of language, they have problems of basic skills. So these are the areas that our governments are really now trying to see how they can improve. The International Organization for Migration says that movement and migration cannot be stopped within and outside the Igad region, but needs to be managed with clear policies that will be adopted internationally and will favor those who wish to move for legal reasons. This is the fourth annual meeting that the Igad member states are holding on the issue of migration. Enjoy for Channel Africa in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. That was... It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The promotion of development around the world is no longer based solely on developed countries helping developed ones, according to a senior official of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. Increasingly low- and middle-income countries are helping each other and coming up with solutions in what is known as South-South Corporation. However, Fistas Akinifesi, chief of the South-South Corporation team of FAO, says that this corporation does not replace collaboration between developed and developing countries. Rocio Franco discussed this issue with Mr. Akinafesi, who first described the concept of countries from the Global South working together. South-South Corporation is the mutual sharing and exchange of development solutions between and among countries in the global south. 
And here when I talk about development solutions, I'm talking about the exchange of various solutions like technical know-how, capacity, expertise, innovative policies, resources, and also best practices and experiences among countries. Many years ago, countries used to think that the only way they can have cooperations with other countries would be with countries that are much richer than them. That's right. What can these countries that are in the South and generally a little less industrialized than others can offer? And is it possible to do this kind of cooperation among countries? Yes, you're very right. In the past, it used to be the North-South paradigm. But I must first mention that the South-South cooperation is not a replacement of the North-South paradigm, but a complement to it. So here we are talking about countries that have development solutions to offer, And they are also able to receive development solutions from other countries. So the paradigm shift here is from being a rich country, providing development solutions to a poorer country, but moving to a different paradigm where countries see each other as partners. They give and take. They share their experiences, their development solutions and knowledge based on solidarity with one another, based on equal partnership and respect for national sovereignty. There is national ownership. So it's a mutual win-win sort of partnership. That is the difference. How much are countries grabbing this new paradigm? That's a very good question. In the work of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, there are over a hundred countries that have been sharing and exchanging their development solutions in the last three decades. And we have at least 20 of them being major providers and the others receiving. But we actually cannot completely demarcate between recipients and providers. They are partners. There are more than 80 of those countries. In terms of main providers, we have countries like China, providing development solutions to over 25 countries in Africa, Latin America, and the Asia and Caribbean. We have a country like Brazil sharing development solutions with many countries in Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa. There are other countries like Indonesia, Philippines. Um, We have Japan, for instance, bringing development solutions from the ASEAN countries to more than 29 African countries. So we have a whole range of partnership happening here. What are the main obstacles that still remain to make this kind of cooperation flourish or make more countries interested and start cooperating this way as well? That is a very good question. Development solutions are available. That is the premise on which social cooperation and triangular cooperation is based, that they already existed. So what is needed is how to share them, how to bring the development solutions from where they are being generated or developed. That was Fistas Akinifesi, chief of the South-South Corporation team of FAO, talking to UN Radio's Rocio Franco. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Togo's opposition has slammed President for Nasengbe's rejection of political reform before next year's general election. Cameroon's military has freed 15 of its nationals along with a Polish priest being held as hostages after being abducted by rebels from the Central African Republic. And the UN mission for Ebola emergency response has opened an office in Mali where two new cases have emerged amid the monitoring of nearly 300 people for potential contraction of the deadly virus. And those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. African healthcare experts meeting in Nairobi say the use of community healthcare health workers on the continent will go a long way in bridging the human resources gap on the continent. Giving the example of countries ravaged by the Ebola outbreak, medical charity AMREF said a robust community healthcare network would have been able to give early warning as well as education to affected communities. Ebola has killed more than 5,000 people in West Africa this year, mostly in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Its spread has been blamed on weak health care systems in the affected countries. Our reporter Sarah Kimani in Kenya, one of the countries using community health care workers, went out to see how they operate and documented their successes so far. Fatuma Jib crisscrosses through the narrow muddy alleys in Kibera, one of the most popular shanties in Kenya. Fatuma is on a mission to save the lives of expectant mothers and children under five, a job she has been doing for four years now. Fatuma is a community health volunteer, one among 200 such volunteers working in Kibera, Laini Saba. I do visit households and give them key household messages. Yeah. We have key health messages, that is a mother can attend ANC clinic four times, taking her child to immunization, and then nutrition, and then follow-up. Like many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Kenya faces a severe shortage of healthcare workers. To bridge that gap, the country launched the Community Healthcare Worker Strategy. Lydia Kuria is a project nurse at an AMREF clinic based in Kibera. Those community health workers are in touch with the community members, so they create demand for the health services and then they're able to do follow-up of clients, different clients, the children who are below five years, the pregnant women, postnatal women, the HIV-positive uh, patients that need a home. Well, in Kenya, they have been used to mainly provide motivation to women to change their behaviors on birth and newborn care, as well as timely hospital visits, a conference organized by medical charity AMREF, one of the organizations that trains community health volunteers in Kenya, outlined just how such a program would have saved Ebola-ravaged countries from the current health crisis. Dr. Leni Chomuhangi is a chief executive officer at AMREF. I would rate them very highly, about 95%. I think when you look at the problems we have in Africa and look at the numbers of healthcare workers that we have, we need community healthcare workers. And I'll go back to Ebola. I strongly believe that if, let's say, those three West African countries, Guinea, Senegal, and Liberia, had a very strong community uh, programming like we have in Kenya, they could have played a key role. They would have been able to quickly uh, do the contact tracing, they could have easily been able to educate the people about the beliefs that Ebola is not a, a developed disease, it's not being given by the healthcare workers. It could actually have worked much better if they were there and they were working. So they are very important and I think we need to continue supporting them. Community health workers in Kenya are deployed in urban slums and remote parts of the country. Dr. Chomuhanji again. So what happens, you train them, give them the basic knowledge on how the kind of information they should be giving to the communities. And in a typical community unit, there will be about 40 to 50 members. And depending on the population density, they could be assigned between 10 to 50 households. 
depending on how widely spread other households are. And then their role is really to go in, talk to them, uh, find out uh, what is happening, whether the woman is pregnant, if she's pregnant, has she gone for antenatal care, and then advise her where to go, link them up with the lesser than nearest facility to seek services, find out if the children have been immunized, and if not, link them up to the facilities, ask people about issues of HIV, have you been tested, or if uh, you're on treatment, encouraging them for adherence, on ARVs especially, and then for diseases like TBs, for contact tracing, uh, like if, some, if a household member has TB at the facility, then you link them up with a community health care worker to follow anyone who has been in contact, starting with the family members, and ensuring that each family member is uh, tested. Sometimes um, a place like Kibera, where people live very close together, to see other contacts they may have had, and make sure that they are tested, they are followed up, they don't have TB. Uh, for for malaria in Kenya, what we are doing with community health care workers, which is actually very successful, they've been trained and the government has changed the policy to diagnose what we call rapid diagnostic testing at the household level. And if uh, somebody has fever, they do the test themselves and they are able to treat. So in their package, there's already the complete dose of antimalarials that has been uh, already uh, provided and they administer the drug. If it's fever and the test is negative, then they refer to the nearest health facility. Funding remains a problem. Many of those who were trained have fallen off, as Fatuma and hundreds of other community health care workers are volunteers. Kuria explains. They are volunteers. They are community health volunteers, but they still need to feed their families. So we find that they have to do something else as they do their community health work. So if we're able to motivate them more, then it would mean they would spend more time with the community health work, and then uh, we would have more impact in the community. But as of now, they are community health volunteers. They have to do other businesses, and we find that we have uh, many who fall out of that system when they seek jobs that maybe are too demanding for them to get time to do their home visits and follow-ups. Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Nigeria, Rwanda and Senegal are among the only African countries running successful community health care worker volunteer programs. The United Nations working with African governments aims to employ one million community health care workers in Africa by the end of next year. Sarah Kimani at Kenya. South Africa leads Africa in the illicit trade in tobacco and is listed among the top five illicit markets globally, according to the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. The illicit trade is set to compromise the government's efforts to reduce the number of smokers in the country. South Africa's health ministry has been working to reduce the number of smokers through strict legislation and banning of the advertising of tobacco products. For more on this, Komuto Mopulane spoke to Francois van der Merwe, Chief Executive Officer of the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. South Africa has got the highest illicit incidence in the region. Independent research uh, shows that last year 31% of the market was illegal. That's more than 8 billion cigarettes. That's more than 1 million packs of 20 per day that was smoked last year in this country uh, that was illegal. This year, due to concerted efforts by law enforcement and revenue authorities, it's come down a little bit. It's about 23%, but it's still about a quarter of the market uh, that is illegal. And that is why we as TISA has also taken the lead and the initiative to arrange this conference uh, to get more than 20 countries here, their governments here, 
international organizations, trade bloc, to put our heads together and see how do we tackle this in the region because it is a global problem, it's a regional problem, and it is also a local problem in most of the countries. It has also been said that of the 60% of illicit cigarettes that have been produced in South Africa, it's seen that about 30% have been smuggled across the borders of Zimbabwe. What is the state of border controls in this regard? And do we also see that it's only Zimbabwe that happens to have 30% or there are other countries again on the continent that illegal cigarettes have been smuggled to from South Africa? Of the total number of illegal cigarettes uh, in South Africa, about 60% is manufactured locally in our country. And that is legally registered companies with uh, legal brands, but they do excise manipulation. In other words, the illegality comes in the fact that they manufacture, but they don't declare all all their production to the revenue authority, and they don't pay duties on all of that, which makes it then illegal. 30% of the products are still smuggled from Zimbabwe in various ways. In the historically... More than 80% of the products came from Zimbabwe, but by concerted efforts, modernization of the borders, uh, tightening up of administrative controls, you know, SARS clamped down on those loopholes. So now it's come down, but it's still 30% that comes in from Zimbabwe in various ways. It's either misdeclared, in other words, it's not declared at the border post. It comes in, in hidden compartments. They hide it in tankers. They bring it in in boats, they have false compartments in trucks, so that's the way they bring it in, or they, or they must declare it, or declare it as biscuits, or juice, or anything else, and the solution is only a cooperative solution. There needs to be a whole-of-government approach. In other words, at cabinet level, this needs to be declared as a big enemy for our country, because it's, it feeds organized crime, it stimulates corruption within government, so there needs to be serious political will to address this, and then there needs to be big and great and efficient cooperation and open trans- uh, co- cooperation and consultation and engagement with the illegal tobacco industry, which is TISA in our country, uh, so we can join our forces and then combat this. And we believe it's very possible uh, to, to, to bring it down substantially. The last part of the, of, the, of the puzzle is that consumers and the general public also needs to become involved because you generally find that smokers or consumers think, you know, I buy a packet of cheap cigarettes, I buy a bargain, so, you know, I score. That is not the case. The money from that support very serious crimes like human trafficking, like drug trafficking, like weapon smuggling, uh, and so on. It's all syndicated very well-organized, well-funded criminal activities. Is it also not the case that most consumers, even if they know, one can hardly ever know that uh, cigarettes would have been illegal? Is is this something that a consumer, a normal consumer really, can tell? It's not that easy, but there are things that consumers can look out for. You know, uh, if you look at a packet of cigarettes, it must have health warnings on, which are prescribed by government. It must have a diamond stamp uh, impression normally at the bottom of the pack, which is a customs and excise regulation. There must be a specific tar and nicotine reading on the pack, which is 1.2 milligram and uh, and 12 milligram respectively. But the biggest indicator in South Africa is the price because uh, we don't have counterfeit products or a lot of counterfeit products which is fake or the Hong Kong or the copy of a real product. We don't have that problem. But what we do have is lots of product on which the duties have not been paid. Now, for consumers, we say as TISA that if you pay less than 16 rand 50 for a packet of 20, there are clear indications that that product might be illegal because the duties have not been paid. 
It's interesting to note that 11 Rand 60 on every packet of cigarettes is excise duty that is due to government. That's without the VAT, which adds another about 2 Rand. Uh, so it shows you that if you sell cigarettes or if you buy cigarettes for less than 16 Rand 50, you barely cover the taxes. And that was Francois van der Merwe, Chief Executive Officer at the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa, talking to Komuto Mopulane. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. The International Monetary Fund says Lesotho's economic growth has slowed partly because of the current political and security situation. Real gross domestic product is expected to grow by just over 2% in 2014-15 against 3.5% a year ago. A technical team from the IMF visited Lesotho from November the 17th until the 26th. That one Langagano reports. The IMF team met the Minister of Development Planning, Dr. Mwikiti Majoro, the government of the central bank, Dr. Rusidisise Matanyani, senior government officials, the private sector, and development partners. The IMF says construction in particular has been affected due to slow implementation of government projects owing to the current political crisis. Although the international reserves have remained strong, mainly due to government revenues from SACU, the IMF has warned in the past that the Sutu's economy should reduce dependence on SACU earnings from regional imports. The IMF mission says improving growth prospects and maintaining economic stability are the main challenges facing the government in preparing next year's budget. South Africa's National Assembly will hold a snap debate on power utility Eskom today. This follows a request by the main opposition Democratic Alliance after Eskom issued dire financial results and announced it was retrenching staff. National Assembly Speaker Bale Gambete, however, says the request for such a debate was made by Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown. So we're in a better position to actually consider that uh, issue of the SNAP debate favorably because we do believe it's a matter of uh, importance. She will be in the House, so I don't see, uh, Chief Whip, that there should be a reason why we shouldn't agree. A conference on the future of banking in Africa has heard that 75% of sub-Saharan adults do not yet have a bank account. Executives, regulators and policymakers in the African Banking Fraternity gathered in Santon, north of Johannesburg, for Future of Banking in Africa 2014 conference organized by The Economist. Ntanta Matlangu filed this report. Leading bankers met in Santon, north of Johannesburg, to discuss the future of banking in the region. The conference heard that with Sub-Saharan Africa being home to some 1 billion people, 75% of the population does not have a bank account and that mobile subscribers have been increasing by nearly 20% a year for the past five years. Oil and chemical giant Cecil is looking to use microbes to turn thousands of tons of waste sludge into compost. The company says it has developed a novel method to transform the potentially harmful trace elements found in industrial waste slushes and to environmentally friendly form. It says while composting of domestic slushes is practiced worldwide, composting of industrial waste sludge is a unique concept.
Indicators at the South. What the US dollar trades at 1096 South African Rand, 905 Botswana Pula, 66 in Zambia. 063 British pound, 080 across the Eurozone, gold $1,187, platinum $1,213 an ounce, brand crude 76.60 cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Now, sports update this hour, starting off with cricket news, said one. Australian cricketer Philip Hughes has died. He's been in coma since Tuesday after he was hit by a bouncer in a domestic game this week. Cricket Australia's team doctor Peter Buckner made the announcement in Sydney a short while ago. Hughes was 25. Hughes was expected to return to the test side for the match against India next week. The incident has raised serious questions about just how much protection cricket helmets provide. And in rugby news, Springbok coach Haneke Meyer says Saturday's test against Wales at Millennium Stadium will be the perfect opportunity for players to stake their claim in the team and is a testament to the depth they have built in the past year and a half. Meyer named a team with eight changes with Tendaim Dawarira, Bismarck Duplessis, Veli Leroux, Conal Hendricks and Loazim Vovo all getting a recall to the starting team. Western Province Centre Damien D'Alende gets a rare call up to the bench while all the overseas-based players are not available as this is not an IRB test week. Yeah, it's a great opportunity, not just for them. Um, you know, it's only three players this year that's played in all, all our games. We lost it was 10. And uh, if you look at, look at the stats, there's 25 players not available due to injuries or what facts whatsoever. But by saying that, I think it's... Uh, it's a great testament to our depth, and um, to still put out a side like this, um, you know, it's a, I believe it's a great side. And the way we see it's a lot of youngsters that wouldn't have get uh, the chance to play, and these guys have proved themselves. So I'm very excited about these guys coming in. Um, they've been waiting for a chance, and that's why you know, this is a great game to see if they can, if they can step up to the next level. And uh, by saying that as well, it's also a character test for us, because it's the first time that we've uh, been on tour for four weeks. And South African Rugby Union says the Junior Springboks will kick off their 2015 Under-20 World Championship campaign against tournament host Italy. The Junior Box are the top-seeded team in Pool B and will come up against Australia, Samoa and Italy from the 2nd to the 20th of June. Junior Springbok coach David Theron says the format of the competition demands that you will have to be on your very best in each match. Italy will play with a lot of passion and commitment in front of their home fans, so that will be a tough opener for them. Pool A consists of England, who return to defend their title, France, Wales and Japan, while New Zealand, Ireland, Argentina and Scotland are grouped in Pool C. On to football news, the Adidas ball to be used at the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations in Equatorial Guinea has been revealed. The tournament originally scheduled for Morocco will take place between the 17th of February of January rather until the 8th of February next year. The ball has been named the Maraba which is an Arabic word for welcome. The Maraba will be officially revealed on Wednesday December the 3rd during the draw of the tournament at the Sipopo Convention Center in Malabo.
and Chelsea coach Jose Mourinho saluted his very good Chelsea side after they produced a 5-0 demolition job at Schalke 04 to equal their best away victory in the Champions League. The 2012 winners were in control from the start thanks to captain John Terry's second-minute goal and they went on to clinch top spot in Group G and a place in the last 16. Jose Mourinho. We had a great chance immediately and the team was always in control, playing very well. Top quality football, very compact, very strong defensively. No mistakes. Uh, Courtois, I don't, I don't remember a, a real save. Just one rebound and the ball hit the post. After that, everything was under control. And I think the result is the consequence of uh, one team that played a fantastic match. And finally, with boxing, two of Muhammad Ali's daughters have played down concerns regarding the former heavyweight boxing champion's health. But Miriam and Hannah have revealed that while their father continues to battle with a progressive neurologic condition, the 72-year-old is otherwise doing fine. Most stories come from people who don't know, understand Parkinson's, and he's never been on the deathbed. That story's been out ten times over the years. It, when it first started coming out, we were nervous. Like, oh my God, his yeah. wife said, don't worry, yeah, yeah. I don't call you. So he's never been on a, in a dying situation. He has Parkinson's. He's had it for 30 years. It is a progressive degenerative disease, but he does well. Mm-hmm. He's healthy outside of the Parkinson's. Um, That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South African President Jacob Zuma criticizes Israel's settlement policy. And Namibia's Electoral Commission defends the use of electronic voting machines. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu. Producer Pumuzura Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Eric Waina Ina with a song titled...
Jesus, 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 Jesus,